This is an Equity Mates Media podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, everyone. It is Bryce here. Just dropping in before the episode kicks off. If you listen regularly to us or follow us on social media, then you would have heard us talking about our book, Get Started Investing. Incredibly exciting times for us, Ren. That's right, Bryce. You know, we've been doing this show for four and a half years. We've spoken to over 150 experts. We've heard so many stories from people in the Equity Mates community. And what we've tried to do with this book is summarize that all, condense as many lessons and learnings as possible to really make uh, this book a resource for anyone at any stage of their investing journey. And, you know, included in it is a bunch of lessons that we wish we knew when we were getting started investing. So hopefully you can learn from our mistakes and um, this book can help you avoid some of the investing pitfalls that Bryce and I have fallen well and truly headfirst into. That's right. So Equitymates has been free for a long time now and anything in the Equitymates media network is is free. And if you have always wanted to be able to say thanks for what we're doing, then this is a great opportunity for you to do so by pre-ordering a copy of the book. The link is available in show notes to Booktopia. And we would very much appreciate if you were able to buy this for yourself, your friends, your family, anyone that you know wants to get started on their investing journey. So very exciting for us, Ren, but uh, let's get stuck into the show. You're listening to Get Started Investing, a production of Equitymates Media. This series is everything you need to get started on your investing journey. You don't need a lot of brains in this business. Investing in yourself is the best thing you can do. Anything that improves your own time. Now you can get rich very young just by having an idea. I mean, I can buy anything I want, basically, but I can't buy time. Welcome to Get Started Investing. In this podcast, we cover all the basics that you need to start your investing journey. Are you joining us for the first time or is this the very start of your investing journey? Well, before you dive into this episode with us, our feed is designed to go from the very beginning. So we strongly recommend that you scroll up and start at episode one. However, if you are feeling brave and just want to dive in, don't let us stop you. Here at Get Started Investing, we unpack all the jargon, the confusing bits, hear your investing stories with the goal of making investing less intimidating and we want to have a good time along the way. My name is Bryce and as always I'm joined by my equity mate Ren. How are you going? I'm very good Bryce. Very excited for this episode. We've just come off a three-part series on global investing, why why we think uh, people should look beyond Australia, how you can invest globally and now we've got someone from Australia's best global investment fund manager. That's that's yes. a bit of a mouthful, but I think it applies uh, to really uh, put a you know tie this section off and really educate us about global investing and probably tell us a lot of things that we got wrong along the way. It is our absolute pleasure to welcome Emma Kirk from Magellan. Emma, welcome. Hi guys, how are you? Very well, thank you. Uh, looking forward to this one, but uh, before we jump in, if you haven't uh, come across Emma before, Emma is a key account manager for listed funds at Magellan, uh, an Australian fund manager with just shy or north, Emma, of a billion, 100 billion now? North That's of right. 100 billion. You cracked the 100 bill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> north of 100 billion in assets under management. Um, we've, with over 25 years experience in the financial services industry, Emma has worked at a AMP, BT Financial Group and ANZ before coming to Magellan. And uh, this is the second time we've had Emma on the show. So I'm very much looking forward to uh, getting into all things global with you, Emma. I am very much looking forward to it, guys. Thanks for having me back. So Emma, before we get into our conversation about global investing, we'd love to start with you and your investing journey. Uh, But we do like to start with a bit of a game and uh, it's a true or false game where we throw out uh, some common uh, ideas about investing, maybe some myths that exist, uh, and get your thoughts on whether they're true or not. So, uh, let's start at the at the very beginning. Uh, true or false? Your very first investment has been your most successful. True. 
Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that might be the first time we've had a true to that. Yeah. No, I um, I started with $1,000. I got an inheritance from my um, great aunt and got $1,000 at 18 and I invested it in the Colonial First State Imputation Fund and I dollar cost average in for the next decade. And uh, as I earned more money, I put more money in on a monthly basis and that added up to over six figures over that decade. So it was there you go. hugely successful. So <laughs> true, true. <laughs> There that is a very go. that's a very sensible way to start investing as well. Dollar cost averaging, finding a fund manager that you believe in, leaving it there, thinking long term. It's very, very boring. <laughs> no, no, there's nothing boring about six figures. That's yeah, for sure. nothing boring about the result. <laughs> so, Emma, uh, true or false? You had a strategy in place before you started investing true. I'm exceedingly fortunate that when I, my parents were financial planners, I also read a great book back in the 1990s written by Noel Whitaker, which was um, uh, Money Made Simple. And in that book, he talked about um, how to dollar cost average. Uh, He had some great budgeting tips in there, which I actually still use today. Um, So, I had some really early education that helped me put in place a strategy. I was also nerdy enough when I was saving up money for my mortgage, I put a graph on the wall and tracked <laughs> my progress. So, I am very nerdy when it comes to this, but I had a strategy in place and I and I tried as hard as I could to stick to it. Yeah, love that. I think Bryce might be preparing a graph on the wall at some point in the near future. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to come and help you uh, with that graph. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, next one, Emma, true or false, is investing as hard as you thought it would be? False. I found that by having a strategy in place and understanding those fundamental laws, I was able to to get ahead. Um, the analogy that I use nowadays, and I, I didn't realize it at the time, the analogy I use today is that investing is a bit like health and wellness. Um, I don't know about you, but in lockdown, you know, tend to eat a bit more, uh, not exercise as much, not move around as much. But um, uh, investing is very much like health and wellness. So, if you wanted to get uh, you know, a bit fitter and lose a bit of weight, there's really only two things you can do. It's uh, eat less and move more. There's a lot of diets out there and a lot of jargon and lots of different ways you could do it, but those two fundamental rules apply. Same applies in investing. The only way you're going to get ahead, ahead in investing is to uh, spend less and earn more. And they're the only two levers that you've got. And once you kind of unpack those, um, you'll see that it's actually very easy. You can swim through a lot of the noise uh, that we in financial services tend to be so good at putting out there. But very much if you think about it, like health and wellness, same thing, there's lots of diets out there and, you know, lots of myths. But, you know, get back to the fundamentals and you can get there. To close out, Emma, um, we often hear that uh, investing is like gambling, uh, from uh, particularly from people who aren't investing, which I find uh, interesting. But uh, true or false, investing is like gambling. I would say false. True investing is not gambling. True investing is part of that earning more part of the equation. You can either earn more through your your personal exertion and efforts to earn income or you can get your assets working for you and they can earn more for you. And if you're sensible about that and have a long-term focus, it is nothing like gambling. Um, If you're at the other end of the spectrum where you are literally punting, then yes, it is. (laughs) Um, But in my view, it is... uh, Follow those rules, be sensible about it, and uh, it can be very successful. I'm glad you said that. If you had told us investing <laughs> was like gambling, you probably would have had a few tough conversations when you went back to Magellan. Magellan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm throwing darts. I'm literally just throwing darts. Oh, that looks like a good investment. Done. <laughs> So, Emma, um, we'd love to hear a bit about your investing journey and some of the lessons you've learned along the way because, you know, as Bryce said, you've had uh, over 25 years in the industry. You would have seen a lot of changes and, you know, you would have learned a lot. If you think back to, you know, your younger self, 18, investing in Colonial First State, what are some of the lessons that you've learned along your journey that you wish you knew when you were getting started? I, I think the thing that I, I would like to have known more about was more about myself, to be really honest, more about behavioral economics and the kind of the psychological drivers that make us human. Um, we are very short-term focused in, in what, how we think and how long we take 
we think it takes to get somewhere. And I think the sooner you can realize that it takes time, um, the easier your journey is going to be. I was always keen to get ahead in every aspect, you know, whether it be investing in shares or property. And I think that I, I follow those strategies and I did really well at it. But just trying to hack yourself and stop yourself from actually going, oh, I, I want to go and buy that or I, I want to get a greater return. I'm going to go and invest in X, Y, Z because it's going to be the next best thing. It's sometimes stopping yourself and understanding, you know, those triggers that want that make you stray off course. And so that's what I wish I'd learned more of. And I probably would have invested more. I would have saved more and dollar cost averaged more because it would have compounded more over time. That's actually what, what I would have done more of. Yeah, it is really hard to actually, particularly when you're excited at the start of your journey and wanting to chase those hundred baggers or 10 baggers even. <laughs> <laughs> it is hard to think about that 40-year investment plan. It is. And that there are you hear the stories of it and you'll only ever hear the stories of people that have got those 10 baggers and mm. you go, why didn't you give me that tip? Why, why wasn't mm. I on that journey? But they're quite rare. Um, and it's a bit, you know, it's a bit like punting on the horses. Only, mm. People only ever tell you about what they win. They don't tell you yeah. about how much they lose. <laughs> mm. So in your role at Magellan at the moment, you have a lot of contact with the retail investors and um, I'm, I'm sure you hear the highs and the lows and everything in between. What do you think retail investors often get wrong about how financial markets actually work? I think particularly in the last decade, a lot of investors just think that markets go up. Um, <laughs> what do you mean? They do. <laughs> <laughs> it's just this one direction and that's it. I, I genuinely think that, you know, particularly those people that have only started in the last decade, the, the GFC was brutal. It was a really tough time for markets. It was a tough time for people in work. You know, not a lot of people realise that lots of great people lost their jobs. So not only were their investments down, but they were out of work. Um, and that they, we seem to live in this world now where people don't think that that's ever going to happen again. And yes, I know we've got a lot of stimulus going on at the moment, and I know that governments said a lot from the last time we had a recession. But it's you know it's not linear. It's not going to go in a straight line up all the time. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is that they think they're going to get rich in a short space of time. Coming back to that FOMO, you know, I've you've got a mate who's given you a stock tip, and you're like, great, I'm going to get on it. I'm going to basically give up works next year. It's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing that I, the third thing is that um, a lot of people focus on last year's best performer. So they go, they look at, they, when they're picking a particular fund manager, they go, oh, who was last year's best performing fund manager or stock? And they invest in that. And I'm like, that boat has sailed. Mm. <laughs> um, that, that saying that, you know, past performance isn't an indicator of future performance is absolutely correct. What somebody's done in the past doesn't tell you what they're going to do in the future. It gives you an indication, but it's not an exact science. And so I would look at those three things and say, you know, markets definitely can go down. It definitely takes time and you maybe want to want to be looking for those unloved areas that you can invest in over the long term. So, they're my kind of three things that I'd like retail investors to remember. Yeah, a lot of, uh, a lot of good, good thoughts there and, you know, Bryce and I have really only invested in a bull market. We, we had the COVID crash of 2020, but in some ways that gave us a false perception of what investing in a bear market was like because it was, you know, a month and it was done. You know, we, we haven't lived through a protracted three-year slow grind down, and I don't think Bryce has the stomach for it, to be honest. <laughs> hey, I was, in, I was in the market during GFC, but I just... Oh, true, uh, you were, yeah. How, yeah, how yeah. old were you in the GFC? <laughs> I was in year 12, I think, year 11 or 12, not even, yeah, year 12. God, I've been through a, I've been through a tech bubble and a GFC, and I could tell you that neither, neither are fun. I was invested in a global tech fund in the late 1990s. Um, it was actually the AMP Global Technology Fund, and it had... Okay, Exactly what I said to you. The year before, it had 35% returns. And I'm like, yeah, I'm in. And then the next year, I was like, oh, what's negative? And I was dollar cost averaging, so it was good. But my yeah, yeah. God, you, you know. Mm, mm. And so, that's that's probably one of the biggest lessons. Mm. 
So we're talking about a global financial crisis. Let's somehow turn that into a segue into global investing. Um, yes. So we've recently done a three-part series on global investing. You know, for for Bryce and I, it's just it's just it's never been easier as a retail investor to invest outside of Australia, and that really excites us. Magellan has been investing outside of Australia for a lot longer than us. Uh, you know, Magellan is is a truly like it truly looking all around the world for opportunities. So let's start with the why. Um, I guess why does Magellan invest globally? So you have probably heard these stats before, but I'm going to uh, reiterate them to you. The Australian market makes up 2.2% of global markets. Um, we are small. And if you compare the makeup of our market to that of the global market, we are dominated by financial services, particularly banks and resource stocks. They make up 48% of our market. So you're, you're very heavily skewed to those two areas. Um, what we're lacking is exposure to technology stocks, um, technology companies and consumer stocks. So Australia's only got 18% in those two key areas versus 42% in Australian, sorry, in global markets. I love going to the website Visual Capitalist. Um, they have a great graphic that shows you the top 100 companies in the world. And if you have a look at the, you know, the, they've got this pie chart of it. There's one little stock in Australia and it's BHP. That's it. We've got one <laughs> company that makes the top 100 companies in the world. And so we're small. And the question is, why is that important? Why do you want to get exposure to that global market? And it comes back to, you know, us talking about time. So, you know, we're in a world where things are, um, the pace of change is getting faster and faster. So if you think back to the early 1900s, um, things were changing then too. So you had the uh, things like the motor vehicle coming into play, you had the, tele, you know, electricity and things like that. And another one of the stats that I love looking back at is the time that it takes for different types of technology to reach 50 million users. And if you go back through time, it took electricity 46 years to reach 50 million users. It took the telephone 37 years. But if you look in more recent times, it took the internet only seven years, smartphones four years, uh, Facebook took two years. And I, the stat that I love is Pokemon Go took 19 days. <laughs> 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 and so change and disruption is not new. Technology is not new. But the pace in the in our current world, it's getting faster and faster. And years and years ago, you had time to think about whether that change was going to impact your portfolio or not. You know, 46 years for electricity, oh, I think it's going to be a keeper. Um, whereas now, you know, companies are made and destroyed in months and years versus decades. And so you want to make sure that you're participating in that growth, but also navigating through it, particularly if it's going to blow up quickly as well. It's not going to be a slow burn. So global markets give you that exposure to that that level of growth that's coming and this this wave of change and disruption. Are there any countries or regions that are particularly exciting Magellan at the moment? I mean, you can't go past what you know the what the US offers, but there are plenty of other amazing markets and opportunities elsewhere. Um, where's Magellan looking at the moment? We are a truly global fund manager in the sense that we actually don't look at any specific country or region. What we look at is companies and where they make money. And we want those truly global companies that are making money around the world, those multinational companies that are set up to gain access to consumers in different markets. Um, I'm just going to give you a couple of examples of some of the stocks that we invest in and some of the crazy numbers that come with them. So um, we have investments in uh, Netflix has 200 million subscribers, but it's across 190 countries. Um, and they recently did a survey of millennials and said, what's your choice for watching TV? What's your first choice? 61% of them said Netflix. So in their mind, TV is Netflix. Um, so that's massive. Um, Google has 87% market share across 219 countries. Guess where their nearest competitor comes in? Oh, like 5% maybe? Yeah. yeah. So, Bing. Name the competitor. Bing. <laughs> who, who else? Who else am I going to search the internet on? So, Bing has 5.56% market share and Yahoo has 2.71. 
So every time Bing comes up on my screen, I'm like, die, Bing, stop it. And I shouldn't do that because it's a Microsoft company and I love Microsoft, but (laughs) I'm not going there. Um, And then if you look at something like Visa, Visa's got three billion cards on issue across 70 million merchants um, worldwide. You can't go anywhere or buy anything without them. And then I'm going to go to the not-so-sexy space of, um, you know, consumer staples and quick quick service restaurants, uh, Nestle, 2,000 brands across 186 countries. Uh, McDonald's has 39,000 stores across 119 markets and Starbucks 32,000 stores across 83 countries. So these companies are truly global. And this pandemic has given you a view that even if one market is shut down, you've got those other markets that are open and those people are consuming those goods on a daily basis and that gives you a lot of protection. Uh, and that's why it's not just about one particular market or one particular country. It's about companies that wrap their arms around the world and derive revenues from around the world. Okay. So, Emma, you've got us excited about the opportunity set globally. Some of those companies that you can invest in once you step outside Australia. I guess the next question is uh that we start to get into the how. So what factors should beginner investors consider if they do want to invest overseas? Okay, so there's a number of ways that you can do you can invest overseas. So you can go and you, you, you rightly said at the start of this, access to international markets has never been easier. So you can actually trade in international markets directly or you can actually buy into funds here on the Australian market that are managed either passively or actively with a basket of global stocks. The only thing that I'd like your listeners to take into account is if you do it directly, there's a number of things that aren't so obvious um, when you first do it, and that is setting up an account to do that. So if it's with an online share trading account, a lot of them put out the 0% commission or $5 fees and things like that, and that's great, but you need to look under the hood you need to have a look at what goes into this. So you're going to have currency conversion. You're going to have to convert your Aussie dollars to the currency in which you want to trade. There's cost associated with that. Um, you want to ensure that what you're investing is in you're actually going to uh, – it's going to be domiciled in the right country. That's the first thing. So are you buying something that's domiciled here in Australia or is it over in the US or in Europe? If that's the case, what are some of the consequences of that? What are the tax consequences of that? Sorry, just uh, if people aren't familiar with the term domiciled, do you want to just quickly explain that? It's actually you own it in that particular country. (laughs) So the entity or the um, stock that you're owning is actually legally set up in that country. And so you want to make sure that you understand where you're purchasing your assets, how you own them, and particularly if you're going to be – some of, the, some of the online share trading funds have got them set up in custodial accounts, uh, which is where you've got somebody who owns it on your behalf. So you just want to make sure that your ownership structure is set, you are understanding how you're owning these things, and then the ramifications from a tax point of view. So when you go to do your tax, uh, are you going to be having to deal with um, the tax regime of the country that you're investing in? And that brings a level of complexity. So whilst it might at first blush look cheap and easy to do, there may be some heavy admin work that you have to do later on versus buying into a fund on a stock exchange here in Australia, potentially at a low cost, and it's domiciled here in Australia, you get um, a tax summary that's in Australian and it deals with the tax office quite easy. So just think that through. That's probably the most important thing. There's no doubt that um, investing overseas opens up uh, a huge opportunity set and uh, opportunity to invest in individual companies, but we're also seeing now many more ETFs become available um, to give you access to international markets. So from your point of view, what role should passive index tracking ETFs and actively managed funds have in a portfolio when it comes to global investing and does one make more sense than the other when you're thinking about investing overseas? Definitely. I think both active and passive ETFs have a place in investors' investors' portfolio. Um, so an exchange-traded fund is a, a basket of stocks um, and you're buying a unit in that particular basket of stocks. Um, passive obviously tracks an index and that gives you exposure to uh, a number of different indices around the world, whether that's a 
top 200 stocks, top 500 stocks. They can be weighted in different ways. And so it gives you exposure also to, to different markets. Um, where I think you can have a look at both passive and active is that they can give you exposure where you can't buy into that particular market or you may not be able to buy in that particular stock. So a good example of that is if you wanted to buy a Berkshire Hathaway stock, uh, what's the share price for Berkshire Hathaway? I think 420,000 USD. <laughs> yes. So to buy one share in Berkshire Hathaway, you have to have about 420 grand. Um, and so what you can do is you can buy an ETF that owns Berkshire Hathaway and that gives you a share in Berkshire Hathaway without having to come up with 420,000. So that's the, the kind of the first thing. It gives you exposure to those big companies or those markets that you might not necessarily have access to. The difference between passive and active is that Passive is going to track an index. So it's going to go up with an index and down with an index. An active manager is going to try and beat that index both going up and also going down. And so I think it's important to have both in your portfolio because you're going to get all the up that comes with passive, but a really good active manager is going to uh, come to the fore in a down market. They're going to navigate that downside, um, hopefully better than a passive fund. And so you've got both in your kit bag. Uh, you've got a lot of protection in there on the downside, but you get to have all the benefit of the upside at the same time. So, Emma, um, you know, Magellan is obviously one of the more famous and uh, I guess best performing uh, active managers in Australia. So we want to, well, actually, maybe in the world. Um, so we want to <laughs> pick, we want to pick your brain about uh, how we can understand, you know, finding good active managers and the different options when it comes to active management. Uh, but before we do, we're just going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. So, Emma, as I mentioned before the break, uh, we want to really pick your brain on um, navigating the world of active managers because there's so much choice out there uh, when it comes to where we can put our money and who we can, I guess, trust to manage it on our behalf. It, it can it can often get confusing. So, um, if we start general to begin with, you know, Bryce and I, we're looking uh, at the sea of active managers and we're trying to figure out who we want to put our money with. What are, what are some things we can do to, I guess, separate the great managers from the perhaps not so great managers? Okay. So, the first thing I'd, I'd say is that desktop research is your friend. Do your research, go into their website, um, have a look at, at what they do and try to understand their process. The next thing is give them a call, have a chat to them, get them to explain what their process is and how they actually go and select stocks. I think that it's really important for you to be able to access those particular companies and find out. And it's got to make sense to you. Um, at Magellan, we're a, we're a very straighty, 180, very vanilla fund manager. We physically own the stocks that we invest in. We have a rigorous investment process that we take our stocks through um, via our investment committee before the portfolio manager can put it into the portfolio. And then we have a way of continuously updating and monitoring those particular stocks. Ask the question, ring them up and go, what's the process that you take a company through? What's your relationship with the companies that you invest in? Do you get to speak to the management of those companies? Do you have um, direct access to the management who are managing these companies on behalf of the shareholders, of which you're one. So you want to make sure that they've actually got that exposure and understanding. Um, and it's not just about, as I said, navigating the upside, it's about navigating the downside. So you want to make sure that they, they've got a really good understanding of that company, but also the competitors in that space. Uh, the last thing I'd say is you want to ensure that you're investing in fund managers that aren't highly correlated, as in aren't all the same. Uh, some fund managers are really great in picking growth stocks. Some are really good at picking value stocks. Um, and I think that it's important to have the, both of those in your arsenal. A really good resource for that is Morningstar. 
Um, Morningstar can give you access to have a look at different fund managers and look at the correlation between them, which is how much they move in concert together. And you do want exposure to fund managers that are different and that have got different ways of thinking. Um, A lot of people chat to us about Magellan versus Platinum. We're different fund managers and we select stocks in a very different way. And that's great. It means that you can actually have different thinking and different portfolio managers working for you at different times. We're not all going to win at the same time. Uh, but if you've got both in, a, in the kit bag, uh, you're going to be happy all the time because somebody's going to be doing really well in whatever the market's doing. So that's really important. But do your research. That's the, that's the main thing. I've been thinking about the uh, Magellan High Conviction Fund, so uh, Chris Weldon should be expecting a call from me shortly. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. And that's – so I'm going to be really upfront with you. I am really happy to take any calls from anybody – um, and so are our portfolio managers. This is the thing. People think that there's this veil of secrecy and you can't get in and chat to these people. Yes, you can. Give us a call. Like, we're here. It's your money. That's the thing that I think a lot of people don't realize is they kind of think, well, I'm just some tiny investor and mm. it's not the case. You know, I want to have a chat to you. I'm happy to tell you about what's going on in the portfolio <laughs> and what we're doing. And, um, yeah, access is really key. You may have opened the floodgates there. <laughs> the switchboard might light up. One eight hundred Magellan actually is our number. I'm not kidding. Is it really? Yes. One eight hundred Magellan. One eight hundred Magellan. You'll get me. <laughs> and what's Hamish's number? I'm not giving that out. <laughs> we need one eight hundred equity mates. Yes. Yeah, we do. We do. Yes. <laughs> now. Emma, there are plenty of options to choose from. There's listed investment trusts, there's listed investment companies, LICs and LITs, uh, active ETFs, unlisted funds, index tracking ETFs, plenty of options. Um, How should we think about the differences between all of them? Now, I know we have spoken in isolation about some of these before, but let's put them all together. And if you can explain the differences, that would be awesome. Excellent. So, I'm going to group it into three areas. So, the first thing I'd like you to think about is, so we talked about LICs, LIT, active ETFs, passive ETFs. Great. Lots of jargon. Um, (laughs) It's going to put people to sleep. (laughs) Um, I want you to think about it in three buckets. The first thing I want you to think about is a company versus a trust. And the second thing we're going to look at is open-ended versus closed-ended. And the third thing is listed versus unlisted. So, they're the three key areas that I'd like you to think about. So, the first is company versus trust. So, a little bit of going back to university, anybody doing business law or trust law, you probably fell asleep in those lectures, but they're actually really important um, because you've got different legal structures here in Australia. And there's actually only two that really matter. One is a company, one is a trust. Um, And so, what I'd like to have a look at is the differences from a, a, a structural point of view. So, company is a, a legal entity and it's governed by the Corporations Act. It has a board of directors and every year it has to have an annual general meeting, which if you are an owner of a company that's listed on the ASEX, you can go to the AGM. I highly encourage you to do that. And it's got a number of shares on issue and that's number of shares on issue is fixed. And it can only increase the number of shares on issue by raising capital and the number of shares has to equal the amount of capital. So, that's the first thing. You've got a company as an entity and it's got a CEO and a board of directors versus a trust. A trust is another type of entity, but it's governed by trust law. And it's instead of having a board of directors and a CEO, it's got a trustee or a responsible entity. And it will generally be held in units as opposed to shares, but still divisible. So, you can actually divide this particular entity up. And the assets sit inside each of these entities. A company physically owns the assets. A trust, it's being held in trust for you as a beneficiary. Uh, a trust doesn't have to have AGMs each year, but it has to has a fiduciary duty. The trustee has a fiduciary duty to look after the assets that sit inside. So, you've got two entities as such that hold these assets on behalf of people, and they're divisible into shares for a company and units for a unit trust. The biggest difference between the two of these is actually from a a tax point of view. So, what happens with a company is that a company will earn its income throughout the year and it will get taxed at a company tax rate. So, the company tax rate used to be 30%, it's now down to 28% and for small businesses it's coming down. down. And 
it can, on an annual basis, actually distribute its profits um, out to the, the shareholders. It takes out the tax first. You get a franking credit attached to it, which you can then claim back through your tax. But essentially, you're going to get your money coming through. The company can also retain profits on an annual basis. It can make a decision about what to pay out and what not to pay out. A trust, on the other hand, it has to be a full pass-through. So the trust itself doesn't tax any of the profits that it makes. It actually passes it through to the underlying unit holders and it gets taxed at their marginal tax rate. It ends up being very similar between the two of them. It's just the process that the money flows through is a little bit different. But essentially, very, very similar, divisible into shares for a company, units for a unit trust, Tax passes through slightly differently, but the outcome is very similar and the way that they're governed is slightly different. So back to the, um, the structures that we said on the stock exchange. So a listed investment company is exactly that. It's a company. Everything else is a trust. So listed investment trust, active ETF, passive ETF, and even unlisted funds are all trusts. And so the only thing I'd like you to think about there is really just the way that tax flows through and the governance. That's where they differ. So that's number one. <laughs> nice. There you go. I actually didn't know ETFs were trusts. So there you go. I'm already learning something. Mm. Yeah. And so that's that's kind of the first thing that the names, well, list investment companies gives it away. Everything else is a trust. So the next thing is open-ended versus closed-ended. Um, and... This is where I like to use my fun analogy, um, so bear with me for this one. Um, so open-ended versus closed-ended. So listed investment trusts and listed investment companies are closed-ended vehicles. Active ETFs, passive ETFs, and unlisted trusts are open-ended. And let's start with uh, open-ended. So open-ended funds I refer to as the never-ending packet of tin tams. <laughs> and the reason why I refer to them as the never any packet of Tim Tams is that an open-ended fund continuously creates units as people join and it cancels those units as people leave. So you've got to imagine that packet of Tim Tams basically producing Tim Tams on a daily basis, um, which means that supply is effectively unlimited. And so how that plays out from a pricing dynamic, so let's say that you wanted to invest into an open-ended fund, you put in your money, you put in, say, $10,000, we actually create $10,000 worth of units, and then we go and buy the underlying assets. So we go and buy Microsoft, Nestle, Starbucks, et cetera, et cetera, and it nets itself out. So the fund actually gets bigger. It grows as people join on a daily basis. If you said, Emma, give me back my $10,000, I'd be like, great, here's your $10,000 back. I'm going to cancel those units, and I'm going to sell Starbucks, McDonald's, and Nestle and sell those units. And so the fund actually shrinks in size. The unit price doesn't change because you've got that netting off of units being cancelled and assets being sold. The unit price isn't affected by that. So you've got no um, impact there. It's just the size of the fund grows and shrinks. How that plays out from a pricing dynamic is that Active ETFs and passive ETFs trade on the stock market and they have got a share price, which is what they trade on the stock market, but they've also got a net asset value. The net asset value is the value of the fund divided by the number of units on issue. So it tells you what one Tim Tam is worth. <laughs> and because supply is unlimited, if there's more demand, we literally create the units and put them on the market. What that means is that the share price will trade very, very close to the net asset value. So someone puts in an order. We create the units, they go on the market, and therefore they trade very close. So they'll always trade one to two cents um, within, within their net asset value. So that's open-ended funds, never any packet of Tim Tams. Let's have a look at closed-ended funds. Now, closed-ended funds I refer to as a pizza. So they have got a fixed number of slices on issue. And when I say fixed, it means that we can't actually create any more um, we can do through certain times through capital raisings, but essentially it's fixed. And what that means is that people have to trade with each other. So let's say, um, Alec, you wanted to buy my piece of pizza. <laughs> it's delicious. It's ham and pineapple. Uh, you want to buy it off of me. And I know that the ingredients sitting inside that, that pizza, it's worth a dollar. But you only want to buy it off of me for 95 cents because you don't like ham and pineapple. And I'm like, no, no, no. It's Always great. looking for a bargain. <laughs> it's and not, a piece it's of pizza. 
<laughs> the double combo. And I'm like, no, 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 no. The pizza's the pizza's worth a dollar. Ham and pineapple is gold. I want a dollar and five. And so you and I will haggle over what this piece of pizza is worth. And when we meet in terms of what we think that value is, that's what the share price will be. Now, the piece of pizza is actually worth a dollar, but if you're prepared to pay more for it, a dollar and five, it's said to be trading at a premium. If you pay less for it, say 95 cents, it's trading at a discount. And that is purely because supply and demand is is fixed. You've got a fixed number of units on issue. The laws of supply and demand determine the share price that you're going to pay in a closed-ended vehicle. The higher the demand, the higher the price. The lower the demand, the lower the price. And so that's the biggest thing with closed-ended and open-ended vehicles. Um, Open-end will always trade very close to its net asset value because supply is effectively unlimited. Closed-ended can trade at a premium or a discount. So I encourage people to go and check the share price, but also check the net asset value. Um, Our net asset value is alive on our website. They update every one second. So you know (laughs) what that piece of pizza is worth. (laughs) Don't pay more for it than you should. And if you're going to sell... Don't sell it for less than what it's worth. And so that's the difference between open-ended and closed-ended. And as I said, listed investment trusts, listed investment company are closed-ended. Active ETF, passive ETF, unlisted unit trust, all open-ended. So that's the second key distinction. Now, there is one more key distinction to go. I appreciate you stepping us through this. I think this is a lot clearer than Bryce and I could ever do. So Now, now, now while I'm thinking about a Tim and pizza, though. I know! <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Bryce, had a real, Bryce had a real Tim Tam thing uh, when we were at uni as well. What do you mean could, had? Could, Still could do. Could put a packet of Tim Tams away like no one else. <laughs> oh, my, I can remember my statistics teacher at uni enlightening me to the fact that a packet of Tim Tams only has 11 Tim Tams in it and she was crushed she's like why why isn't it an even number you can't you can't split 11 you get to the end of the packet and you've got to break one in half it's terrible well here's a fun <laughs> fact that I was also shocked when I found out that the double coat Tim Tams actually have one less in them than the normal yeah. packet of Tim Tams. Yeah. <laughs> what a G-up. I love it. I love things. Like, I love it like when they reduce the package size of stuff and you're like, hey, uh, but it's more expensive. <laughs> invest in those companies. Invest in them. True, um, true. Anyway, we digress. Sorry. sorry. Okay. Listed versus unlisted. And so... Um, ETFs, exchange-traded funds, have been around for quite some time. Um, and what's been a new advent to it is the um, the active ETF coming onto the market. So traditionally back – oh, God, I'm going to feel old now. Back in the – unit trusts were only ever unlisted, so you could only ever buy them off market. You had to send in an application form, send in your check. Maybe a couple of weeks later, you'd know how many units you got. You didn't have price transparency. It was very, very slow. And so um, that's the way unit trusts used to work. ETFs, exchange traded funds, came on and they were created by Jack Bogle from Vanguard and he created passive ETFs and put them on the stock exchange over in the US. And we've had them here in Australia for a while. Vanguard has been one of the uh, the starters of that. All they are is a, a unit trust that trades on an exchange. Passive ETFs could easily do that because they replicate an index and you have full Price pants, try there. I can't even talk. Price <laughs> transparency <laughs> around the underlying stocks that they own, so you can easily price it. Active ETFs, which are exchange traded funds that have got a portfolio manager picking the stocks, couldn't do that because if we actually uh, disclosed all the underlying stocks, we're giving away our IP. And so in 2015, Magellan was the first one to bring an active exchange traded fund to market. And we worked with the regulators and the ASX to have a delay in the portfolio disclosure. And we worked out a way to actually put the net asset value live on the market so you could see what it's worth to have that price transparency to make an informed decision about whether to buy or sell. But effectively, all we were doing was taking our unlisted unit trust and putting it on a stock exchange so that you could buy it instantly. And what it meant, as opposed to filling in paperwork and sending in a check, if you so had much an, paperwork, so much oh, paperwork. Oh, so much paperwork. <laughs> so much paperwork. So much. You, you could push a button and buy it on an online share trading platform or through a stockbroker. And when I when I say to people, people say, what's the difference? So I go, what is 30 minutes of your time worth? 
because that's the difference. The difference is you can fill, spend 30 minutes filling in paperwork, send it in, and it will go to the registry and they'll create those units for you. Or you push a button, spend 20 bucks, and buy exactly the same thing in an instant and same thing when you go to sell. So that is the difference. You are buying into the exact same thing. Now, the next evolution of that, they used to be separate unit trusts. So our unlisted trusts and our listed trusts were two separate unit trusts. Whereas now, the next evolution We've actually put these together into one unit trust. It's called uh, the single unit trust. And what it means is it's like a house with two doors. You can now come into our funds via the unlisted pathway and, you know, you actually all the listed pathway and you can swap between the two inside the same unit trust. Uh, And so that is the next evolution of unit trusts and how you can access them. From your point of view, from an investor's point of view, it shouldn't make any difference. You should choose whichever suits you, you, whether it is pushing a button and buying or whether filling in paperwork. The only thing I would say is if you were going to dollar cost average, if you were going to do a regular savings plan, sometimes the unlisted pathway can be more beneficial to you because you're not going to be paying brokerage every single time you put in that money. So for our unlisted funds, we um, you get a BPAY code. It's unique to you, and you can just BPay in via internet banking. So that's the only really. It's the time that you spend. <laughs> how much is your time worth? Um, and also the cost of the brokerage if you are going to be doing a regular savings plan. Other than that, mm. listed and unlisted are the same. You're getting a basket of stocks in a portfolio that's professionally managed on your behalf. And to also clarify, the fees are the same, the underlying fees that the manager charges regardless of listed or unlisted. Correct, yeah. So the underlying fees are exactly the same. The stocks are the same. Everything is the same. It's just the pathway you come in. Mm. Uh, And one pathway is your effort in filling in paperwork. The other pathway is you're using someone else's technology and you're paying to use that technology, which is the online share trading platforms tech. Mm. I think one other thing uh, with the unlisted funds, as well as not paying brokerage every time you top up, if you're someone who behaviorally is going to sell and panic and check things constantly, uh, that paperwork can sometimes be a little bit of a, uh, a check on your emotions. You know, it makes you pause and think. Definitely. I really, I really loved my investment strategy, which was buy something, put it in the bottom drawer, dollar cost average in it and not look at it. Mm, yeah. Mm. Now, mm. we've just done a big uh, theoretical conversation and I, I think you know we should give you credit for putting the time in and making that very clear because it's, it's a good, it, it was a good explanation of everything. Magellan, if we move it to like a practical example to give people a taste of the different options, Magellan has a global fund that is unlisted, has an open class and a closed class. So maybe if you use a global fund as an example, how does that all fit together with the, all the different options you've just explained? My goodness, we we <laughs> we took something that and that's never been done before and uh, did it with our our biggest fund, our global fund. So previously, uh, and it really is off just off the back of the evolution of technology. That is the only reason as to why we've got to where we are today. So originally, the Magellan Global Fund started in 2007 and it's an, it was an unlisted unit trust uh, and it was the only way that you could access our funds. In 2015, we replicated that fund and came out with the Magellan Global Equities Fund and it had the ticker code MGE and that was the first active ETF on the market in Australia. But it was identical to the global fund, exactly the same stocks, exactly the same fees and it was literally the only difference was you bought MGE on the market and you bought the Magellan Global Fund as an unlisted fund, but they weren't the same trust. So you were going into two separate trusts um, with two different cost bases. Uh, In 2017, we came out with a listed investment trust, so a closed-ended vehicle that's on the exchange, and that was called the Magellan Global Trust, and it had the ticker code MGG. So three of those vehicles that I just went through, we had three of them, (laughs) and people could access all of them, but they were all separate unit trusts. So last year, we did something that's never been done in Australian history. We actually brought all of those together into one mega unit trust. And so if you bear with me for two seconds, what we did was we (laughs) turned 
<laughs> we took the Magellan Global Fund, the Unlisted Managed Fund, and the its listed equivalent, so the open-ended active ETF, and we put them together into what's now called Magellan Global Open Class Units. So those two have come together. They are inside this, the one house, and they've got it's a house with two doors. So you can come in via the application doorway, and you can also come in via the listed doorway. And what happens is you're going to the same unit trust. If you come in via the unlisted pathway, you still get given an SRN, a security holder reference number, like you would in an IPO. If you come in via the listed pathway, you come in on your HIN, your holder identification number. But you're sitting inside that one trust. And if you want to go from listed to unlisted or unlisted to listed, you can. You can actually swap between those two worlds inside the open class unit world. So that sits there. Also inside the same trust, but I'm going to talk about it a bit like a granny flat that sits beside the house. It's on the same parcel of land. We've got the granny flat, which is the closed-ended listed investment trust. It is called the Magellan Global Fund Close Class Unit, and it is the pizza. It's got the fixed number of units on issue, and it can only be bought and sold on the stock exchange to another human being. So units aren't continuously created. It is literally just people trading within themselves. But the underlying assets, so the stocks that we own and the fees, are identical to the open class. So if you can think of a plot of land with a house with two doors and a granny flat (laughs) sitting beside (laughs) it, that is what the Magellan Global Fund is today. There we go. We covered a lot of ground there. Is is your uh, brain broken? Because no, no, but, but thank you for making it, uh, I think, very clear. And, um, yeah, I, I know that there is there is a lot to comprehend there and a lot of jargon for those that are trying to figure out what it all means and where they should be putting their money. But um, I think you, you laid it out pretty clearly, Emma, so thank you very much. Just be, just before uh, we move on, I think people might be wondering, um, so now, I, now I'm starting to understand the different options, is there... A, the best option and I'm going to preempt it with an answer tell me if I'm wrong deciding how you're going to invest based on the structure of the investment rather than the investment strategy their f- philosophy the manager all of that stuff is kind of putting the cart before the horse is that right or is that wrong I th- the first thing is you want to be investing in the right firstly the right asset class that suits your risk profile I think is the first thing um, next is you want to then pick the right fund manager uh, because a number of fund managers have got different structures. So that's probably the first thing is make sure that you're picking the right manager. Um, then I would definitely have a look at the structure. I, if you are somebody that wants to get in and out at net asset value, go for an open class unit, go for something that's continuously creating those units. There's nothing worse than when you want to go and sell and you can see what the net asset value is and it's trading at a discount. It hurts. It's really hard. So I would always, um, if you're not comfortable with discounts, I'd always go for an open class unit. If you are someone that likes a bargain, (laughs) (laughs) then closed class um, units, listed investment companies and listed investment trusts, if they're trading at a discount, um, then it gives you an opportunity to buy something that's on sale. And if your time frame is long, which I know all of your uh, listeners will have a long time frame after listening to you guys, um, then... You can wear that. So I think that, you know, you can actually get some extra uptick in buying into closed-ended funds that are trading at a discount. But you just need to be aware that when the time comes to sell, it's still maybe trading at a discount. So, but a lot of managers now where they are trading at a discount are doing things to actually close that discount. Um, I do know that Bell Potter put out a research report on all the closed-ended vehicles in the market on a regular basis. And so that's a great document to have a look at to go who's trading at a discount, who's trading at a premium and what's been the history around that. But once again, investor sentiment drives the value of those closed-ended vehicles. So I would say that closed-ended vehicles are like the emotional uh, ones on the market, whereas your open-ended are very logical. So do you want logical or emotional? (laughs) (laughs) I like that distinction. Nice one, Emma. So um, I guess thank you for your time today. We'll um, very much appreciate you coming on and talking all things global. As a, uh, it's, a, it's been a great sort of wrap up to the series that we've done. If anyone would like more information on what Magellan are doing, where's the best place to sort of head? 
ring one eight hundred Magellan. I I think have a look at uh, MagellanGroup.com.au is our website. There's some great educational videos on there. Um, I've done some ones on what's a net asset value, what's liquidity, um, things like that. Um, there's some great uh, videos on global investing by Hamish Douglas, Chris Weldon, uh, infrastructure Gerald Stack. Um, and also Airly. Uh, I know a number of your listeners love um, Airly. So Emma Fisher and Matt Williams, um, you can get to their website via our website as well. And we've got our MFG core series, which is our new low cost. So Vahari, Alyssa, and also uh, Dave Costello. So got some great educational videos on there for that. Um, so yeah, and ring 1-800-Magellan and have a chat to me. Nice. I dare, I dare, I dare you. <laughs> Can't wait to get the email from Emma the evening that this episode is released being like, I shouldn't have given that number out. (laughs) I'll let you know. I'll let you know the stats. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Uh, But Emma, we we like to finish uh, our interviews with uh, experts with the final three questions. So we'll get stuck into those now. Um, The first one is, do you have any books that you consider must read? Yes, I'm holding it up in front of the camera right now. Um, I think um, – so the ones on your website, I love your book section on your website. The books on there are amazing. Learn to Earn by Peter Lynch is a definite must. So it is written, uh, aimed at high school students to explain um, the stock market. Um, fun fact, Magellan is named after Peter Lynch's Fidelity Magellan Fund because um, he is the world's – best ever investor. Um, and so uh, Learn to Earn by Peter Lynch. Um, two that aren't investment ones, one is Atomic Habits. You've already got that on your website. I think if the only thing you do is overcome your own impulses to uh, either not start doing something. So don't, you know, we start investing, get over your fear, get into it, understand your reactions to stuff. So Atomic Habits is really good to get you in the right space to just build up that discipline and understand your emotions. And the last one I'd say is Misbehaving by Richard Feller. So Richard Feller is basically the father of behavioral economics. Misbehaving is excellent. It just talks about the world of Econs, which are basically people who would follow pure logic when it comes to making decisions versus humans. And unfortunately, we're all humans. Um, and so it dispels a number of myths and gets you to understand more about humans and how flawed we are. And if you can overcome that, you can hopefully be more successful at investing. Nice one. Uh, the second question is, what's the best company you've ever come across? Magellan Financial Group. Um, (laughs) We asked Hamish that and I don't think his answer was Magellan. (laughs) No, no, that's because he's been investing long before he set up Magellan. Um, I have to say it is is Magellan Financial Group um, and I am exceedingly biased. I am going to put that out there. But I... I, I invested, actually invested in Magellan's funds long before I ever worked at Magellan. And as you said, I've been in the industry for 25 years. Um, and so when I was making my, my decisions about who to put my money with a long time ago, it was Magellan. But from a company point of view, it is everything. It's, it, it is on the, the packet. It is a great company full of great people um, who want to do the right thing by investors. And so I, I love working here. Uh, I love our funds. And even as a company, I love our company. So, sorry, I bleed blue. (laughs) And then the final question, if you think back to uh, those early days at 18, dollar cost averaging into your first managed fund, uh, what advice would you give to your younger self? Invest more. Yeah. Easy. <laughs> yeah, good, good advice. Just save more money. Like that's the thing that I don't think a lot of people understand is that you have got the power in your own hands to be financially independent and it really just comes down to if you can save more money and put it away and invest it on a regular basis, it doesn't – not much happens over the first decade. It's really boring. But compounding is – amazing and if you can stick at it and just save that money you will be laughing in retirement awesome way to finish emma thank you so much for your time today it's always great chatting to uh to yourself and and everyone else at magellan and look i'm pretty sure that a lot of uh, the get started investing community would have uh, taken a lot of value from that so appreciate your time and we look forward to uh chatting again 
Thanks so much, guys. Really appreciate you having me on again. Thanks, Emma. Get Started Investing is a product of Equity Bates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of Get Started Investing are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equitymates website where you can find the ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media and the hosts of Get Started Investing acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.